0: Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. For today's review, my guests and I are headed way back to explore the horrors of the late 1800s in M. Night Shyamalan's The Village, which is currently streaming on Amazon Prime. A village of isolated Amish people live secluded from the outside world for fear that monsters living at their borders will harm them but when an act of violence will cause a member of the village to cross into the monster's borders, the villagers' reality will be rocked to its core. And joining me to talk in hushed tones about the ones we don't speak of are returning friends of the show, Berto and Max. Thanks for joining me, guys.
1: Yo, what's happening? going on? We don't, we don't have to whisper for this, right?
0: No, definitely no. Okay. not. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> definitely not. Um... <laughs> yeah, this was a movie that... I was excited to see pop up on Amazon Prime because a few weeks ago, Berto and I went back and revisited Signs, which is one of those movies that when you think about it, it's like, yeah, I remember that being pretty good, but it's one of those films that I'm afraid I think about more through like nostalgia. Like I look at it with nostalgia and that, oh yeah, it was a movie from my childhood. And then you go back and revisit it and you're like, is this actually as good as I remember it being? Or is it just something that's kind of tied to my childhood? And fortunately, Signs was one of those movies that ended up, holding up really well. Uh so I was excited to kind of have the opportunity to talk about the village with you guys, but berta when was the last time you think you saw this movie?
2: Oh my god. Uh It's got to be probably in high school. I think so. That was a, a high school. Yeah, definitely high school. Cuz I it's been you know, it came out in 2004 and Yeah, so probably when I I think we might have watched it together. I'm not sure. Something like probably. that, but it's been yeah. This is the first time I've
0: watched it in forever. Yeah, it was one of the movies I saw when it came out in the theater and then we probably watched it in high school or something and then for whatever reason just hadn't revisited it. But how about you, Max? I can't even remember, honestly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'd say, yeah, I guess high school would be when I'd see it. Last time I saw it.
0: It's one of those things that's really unfortunate about M. Night Shyamalan when people talk about his career and that – He had that kind of more recent stretch where his films really underperformed or they weren't kind of of the quality that his early stuff was. So I think in terms of like the general conversation around him, a lot of the time, like I've been guilty of it, of overlooking a lot of his early movies in that, Berta, we talked about it when we revisited Signs in that he has that stretch of like four years in the early 2000s where it's just hit after hit after hit. And I think The Village shares a lot of similarities with Signs. Obviously, it's a different sort of subgenre of, uh, of horror. But, uh, in terms of the film itself, Max, do you remember how stacked this cast was?
1: No idea. I, I forgot. Uh, I was actually rewatching it, uh, with Candace, uh, this afternoon and, you know, Jesse Eisenberg is like, <laughs> yeah, <mad>. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, Holy shit. I can't believe he's here. And like, I, I really didn't notice how many big names was, were sitting at the table, you know, it's surprising, frankly.
0: Yeah. I mean, we've got Bryce Dallas Howard, Joaquin Phoenix, Adrian Brody, William Hurt, Sigourney Weaver, Brendan Gleeson, Cherry Jones, Judy Greer, Michael Pitt, Jesse Eisenberg. Like the list just goes on and on. And um, and I would say like half of these actors are already big names, especially in early 2000s. But then you have kind of up and comers such as uh, Bryce Dallas Howard. And you said like Jesse Eisenberg, Michael Pitt. I mean, it's overwhelming how many stacked actors are in this movie Berto who is somebody that kind of stood out to you right from the jump though given how large the cast is uh
2: for me it was uh Brody with uh Adrian Brody Brody, yeah he his I don't know I think out of all I feel like he had the most challenging role because everybody like I guess Bryce Dallas uh Howard had a pretty pretty intense role in the sense that she was playing a blind person but Adrian Brody had a he was just kind of out there. We were talking about earlier before we started shooting that he, he plays this role where it's nowadays is not acceptable, like that kind of role. And it was just like, I don't know. I feel like he just nailed it for me. He like really, he sold me on the fact that he was mentally challenged and he was really out. Like he he was just out there. And that definitely hit for me. I was like, Holy shit. Like, like, yeah, Joaquin Phoenix is in it, but he's fairly young. And like all these other guys are all basically there were their prime but i feel like for me brody definitely made it made the most impact
0: how about you max i would have to agree
1: um because i think he did it with a certain level of tact and professionalism that wasn't over the top uh, and especially in uh you know nowadays um people can get really offended by certain portrayals of especially those with you know mental disabilities or physical disabilities, but I think he did it in a way that wasn't comical, you know, that it wasn't it wasn't offensive. I think it was it a lot of professionalism intact. Um and it wasn't almost like satire or parody or, or whatever else. So I think he did really really well. I, I enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, that was definitely something that was refreshing to see on a rewatch because I don't know, this time period especially like I could imagine, I could. It was easy for me to go into the film and assume, like, that could be a rough portrayal of uh, somebody with mental, uh, uh, mentally disabled. Uh, So that was definitely refreshing. And I think for me, though, the character that was the most impressive, not that I'm not even super familiar with her work, but uh, Bryce Dallas Howard as Ivy Walker, who plays the blind daughter of one of the village elders, uh, I thought was a terrific performance in that it's. Partially her, but it's also partially, again, like M. Night Shyamalan's strength at writing characters um, that, like, she has this disability that um, in any other film, it would be her disability kind of undercuts everything that she does, right? Like, it would be portrayed as being a massive disadvantage. And yet, despite the fact that she has this disability, she's one of the strongest, uh, not only like strongest willed characters, but it's never her disability is never used against her in a way that is like for back, lack of a better word, like demeaning in a way, yeah. you know what I mean? It's never kind of the scares are not all built around the fact that she's blind. Right. And right. it's almost as if being blind doesn't really affect her in a lot of ways. Right. Like she's very free and she's very aware of her surroundings the majority of the time, mm-hmm. um, which I think just goes to show like, again, his strength in focusing on care on strong willed characters, but also a world that is accessible to them, right? Like when later, much later in the film, when she's going through the woods, we don't see her tripping and stumbling over tree roots for 30 or 40 minutes. You know what I mean? Like, again, that's kind of a pitfall that I think a lot of uh, directors from that period maybe could fall into.
1: I think it, it was good to see that he didn't use her blindness as a plot device. It was kind of her it was part of her character and it built a certain level of complexity to who she was, but it wasn't that everyone was like, Oh, she's blind. She can't do this. Oh, she's blind. She can't do that. A few characters mentioned that like um, towards the end of the movie, it's like why would you send her out in the woods by herself? And her father was, her father said she's more capable than we are. Like she, she's fine. She can do it herself. It just so happens that she's blind. It's not an impairment as more uh, part of who she is and I think M. Night Shyamalan did great, is making these, you know, for instance, Joaquin Phoenix's character is very quiet, very reserved, not people see that as a negative, but it's just part of the movie. Same with Adrian Brody's character. It's not, It doesn't make him less of a character in the movie, but more so just a more complex character.
0: Yeah, I mean, Ivy has that line to Joaquin Phoenix's character where she says, I see the world, just not the way you do, right? Right. And it's really interesting to see, especially like those three characters, Adrian Brody, who's mentally challenged, and then you have Bryce Dallas Howard, who's blind, and then you have um, Joaquin Phoenix, who is, he doesn't have a handicap, he's just like very quiet in a lot of ways, and like he doesn't speak a lot to people, and he's very reserved. You see these three people that all experience life differently, and then like Max said, they're, their disabilities or their their off-the-beaten pathway of living in terms of, like, Joaquin Phoenix's character allows... It never becomes about, like, using those elements of them as a plot device. It's just about experiencing the same thing in three different ways, and yet these characters are all kind of able to converge on the same sort of uh, wavelength that the plot is going on in a way that, again, like, you're not laughing at Adrian Brody. You know what I mean? Like, again... That's something that I think could very easily become a pitfall for some directors that couldn't necessarily like have that foresight that like, hey, we need to make sure we put a lot of attention on portraying this correctly. Because in the next few years or 10 years or 15 years, looking back on that, we might be embarrassed by the way that turned out. Mm -hmm. Right. I thought it was interesting that, again, like one of the characters that is so pivotal to the story that has a disability also has... They allude to the fact that she might have some type of power in that Ivy talks about throughout the movie that she's able to see the people's color, even though she's blind, obviously. Um, So that was interesting. I thought this idea that M. Night Shyamalan kind of he's known for having supernatural movies and he was able to insert that into the narrative through this character with disabilities. And yet it doesn't make the entire movie feel like fantastical or it doesn't it's not overt that she has powers, right? what did you guys think of that decision?
2: Yeah, I think, I think for me, that was, that was cool. I, I like that. Cause for a second, when she said that, that line where she's like, I see blurry things. I was like, for me, I was like, or she's like, I see it, but in a blurry way, I think they were talking with Noah and um, Lucius when they were in by the rock and she's like, Oh, I see, but I see blurry things. So I was like, Oh, she might be partially blind. She might not be fully blind. But now that you think about it, there's, I guess there, there's the since you mentioned it, there's kind of a hint of like she might have some kind of super sense senses like I guess senses since she's not being able to fully see, she can really like you can tell there's certain scenes when there's a wedding scene where she has super heightened hearing because she hears the kids ye- uh, yelling before everybody else does, and it's like little little hints like that which I I kind of like. That's what I like about um, M Night's movies that he he's not over supernatural, but there's a sense to them that there might be something not ordinary, like out of, out of the ordinary kind of thing. So yeah, for me, I thought that was kind of cool. I, I really liked her character as well.
0: Yeah. Cause she has that moment where she says, I mean, she says when they're on the rocks in the woods, it's Lucius and uh, Noah and they're talking and she says like, I can see the color in people. And then later when Joaquin Phoenix is stabbed and he's about to die, she says, oh, I can't see his color, right? And she even... It's the one f- uh, moment in the film where her blindness is very apparent because she's looking for him, and yet she almost trips over his body when he's on the ground. And it's this idea that, like, normally she doesn't like that. She's able to sense her surroundings and sense other people. I mean, there's a couple instances in the movie where she senses where he is without him even saying anything or making noise. And so that's one of those... And she even... uh alludes that her father has it too. Even though the father himself never mentions it, obviously, because he's got his sight, she mentions that he has the same type of ability. Um, which made me kind of think about this movie in a new way on a rewatch, that perhaps this movie is connected to M. Night Shyamalan's other movies, Unbreakable yeah. and uh, Split in Glass. Have you seen those movies, Max?
1: Um, I saw Split. I haven't seen the, the other two yet.
0: So... Basically, those movies are part of this superhero universe that M. Night Shyamalan created. It's kind of like a dark fantasy thing that it lacks a lot of the kind of larger-than-life nature of superhero movies, like the Marvel movies. It's more kind of like grounded stories with people that have special powers. But this made me think that this film maybe takes place in that same universe, in that she has superpowers, and yet the rest of the film, again, is kind of very grounded in a lot of ways right? She's not, her power, it's never perceived that she is like a god or something or that she's a superhero, right? It's kind of, she takes this ability and is able to use it in a way that makes sense in terms of the scale of the story, right? And so I just thought like, oh, maybe this is part of that series because it also takes place in the same state as those other movies. Like a bunch of his movies take place in Pennsylvania and this movie takes place in Pennsylvania. So that was kind of just a a random aside that I thought maybe uh, would fit into that continuity.
1: Right. I, I appreciated the fact that it it was, like you said, it was so grounded um, because this could, I mean, he could have went totally sideways with all this. She can see color and then, you know, she has some sort of powers and they can very quickly become a supernatural. Um, like you said, dark fantasy that she's some sort of prophet or whatever else. But it, again, just like her, it's kind of a side note to her lack of vision. She kind of just mentions it haphazardly. She doesn't really make it about herself that she has these, you know, extrasensory powers. It's just, Oh yeah, I can see, I can't see you. I can see your color, but whatever, you know, it's not, he doesn't use it to move the movie along so far as just the character development moves the movie.
0: Yeah. So something, again, that I did not really remember, and it was very much more apparent on a rewatch, is just how strong the sense of the atmosphere is. Like, obviously, we're going to get into the twist later, but Shama and and, uh, cinematographer Roger Deakins do such a great job of creating this Amish community, not only physically, like they built this entire town, but also just the way in which they're able to make it seem like it's a million miles away from the rest of society, right? It never really feels like it's a set. It's kind of like, if I mean, we're all from the, the same area. Like It's kind of like when we would go to Plymouth Plantation as kids or something like that, and you wander around, and like for a second you forget these people are actors. You forget that you're walking around essentially a museum. Um, I was really, really impressed with not only, again, the setting, but just the atmosphere that they're able to make and how they're able to take this very kind of historically accurate environment and yet apply this supernaturalness to it that really makes this period like that much more terrifying.
1: And I think um in a previous episode, Jay, you mentioned that you're not a huge fan of period pieces. Um, so what, what kind of drew you to that? Did that dislike of period pieces happen before this movie or after? Cause you kind of developed it?
0: yeah, I think it's I think I'm developing more of an appreciation for it because the length that the directors have gone to develop these this the authenticity of the setting, whereas a lot of the time maybe it it kind of just looks like they threw together a set of uh, a couple of cabins or whatever. But in terms of this, like f- the movie is not so much as focused on the monsters. Like the monsters that are in the film almost feel secondary in a lot of ways to the lengths that he goes to establish like this is an isolated community. We see that in every facet of the characters and their lives and whatnot. Like the first 30 minutes of the movie are basically just the characters going about their normal lives, right? It's about them doing chores. It's about them meeting and celebration in these uh, like lovely set pieces, dinners and things like that out in the field. And then it gets into the supernatural things. So I think it's more about, him going to the lengths that he does to make this a believable setting. And then the unimaginable, as it were, kind of comes into play. But uh, that setting, I mean, the village that they make, it took like, I think they said 11 weeks and 300 people to build all that, which again, I mean, think about the lengths that some studios go. It's like they film on a stage and they, fil- they build three four buildings and then they shoot them in different ways to make it look like it's bigger than it is. So just like little things like that, it feels very believable. Um, in a way that, I don't know, I think it helps it a lot because when the monsters do show up again, you're it's almost you're almost caught by surprise when the monsters show up because you're kind of so involved in the character and the world uh, in so many different ways. Yeah, I mean, you know that the monsters are going to come up eventually, but when they do, it's like much more shocking, at least for me. They
1: talk about it so much that you just think it's kind of a legend that they're using this to manipulate the town is more sinister. And then when they do start showing up, you're
0: like, Oh, they're, they're real. Oh shit. Like things like it, right. yeah. things are going to get a little dicey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Cause it is very much that idea that it seems like a legend that they just tell the kids, right. Or it's just a story to keep the kids in line basically. Right. Cause it's like, yeah. How is the only way that you're going to protect people? from venturing out and wandering off in the woods and hurting themselves and dying out there or getting attacked by other people. It's like, you have to create the boogeyman essentially. And especially the way that you see that, especially William Hurt's character, who's the elder, how he basically builds up the society around that. And you even see him like proselytizing that to the little kids during the school. He's like, yeah, why can't we go out there and what do we have to watch out for? And so building up a an economy of fear basically with the people that live there, that's something again that speaks to like the authenticity of the period because how do you explain the unimaginable in the 1800s? Well, you tell them like there's a boogeyman or there's a ghost or there's a witch out there because you can't explain the unexplainable, right? In terms of like mentioning the monsters, Berta, what did you think of the monster design and the ways in which Shyamalan used them within the story?
2: I think it was great. I think it's it's just so creepy. To me, it came out as being so creepy. Just like it has like, I don't know, to me like, well, later on, you get to see the phase and stuff and, like, what the whole the whole monster looks like. And it's, it's to me, just one of the creepiest thing. Like, I don't know. I, was, I wasn't I was expecting it to be like that. that I think that's why it, it came off as so creepy. And I, it definitely would, if I lived there, I would definitely stay away from those woods, for sure. I'm locking my door every night because that those things are creepy looking. And I think the fact that they made it so creepy looking and, like, I think the fact also that they built... Like the kids, they kind of tell these stories of these monsters at such a young age, that it really adds an extra element of fear. Like there's a scene uh, where Jesse Eisenberg's character and their teenagers are playing dare, basically, where they're standing, they're standing on like a stump, a piece of a tree that's broken, a little stump. And he's like, "How long can you stand there before the monster gets you?" And it's just like that, that in, like they installed so much fear into these kids as a young age that basically they kind of made it to look at as these monsters being the worst thing that could happen to you. Um, But yeah, overall I thought that the, the whole costume and the way it looked and just the way it like everything about it, I enjoyed it. I thought it made it more scarier than I was expecting a monster to be in this movie.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it was kind of like what Max said in that you hear about them so much and you see brief glimpses throughout the movie. Like there's two instances early on where the first time you see a reflection of it in the water, but it's not clear. You can't make anything out. And then the next time is when one of the guys in the watchtower hears something, investigates, and then you kind of just see it scurry off uh, out of frame. And you don't get a good look at it until about an hour into the movie. And it was interesting that I was reading in an interview. They said originally they didn't have the red cloaks that they do. It just was like a big furry monster. And M. Night Shaman was like, yeah, this looks ridiculous. <laughs> and it's and it, it's kind of like the root of every monster or every horror movie in that as soon as something is revealed in its entirety, it's not scary anymore. Right. And I was really impressed at how drastically scarier it is when they put the cloak on the monster. Yeah. Because if anything, it looks like a person to a certain extent, right? So throughout the movie, we see the villagers are wearing those golden cloaks because go- the color gold is like the good color and red is the bad color. Mm. Uh, So the monsters are wearing the red cloaks and it almost looks like they're people that have like mutated into a monster or something.
1: Right. And
0: the three-fourths of their body that that cloak covers, I think it. you know what's under it, obviously, because you see enough of the monster. But at the same time, even not being able to see all of something, for me, just makes it that much scarier. But Max, did you think that they used the monsters enough? Because... Like I said earlier, they show them briefly in the beginning, but then it's not until about an hour into the movie where we like see it in all of its uh, porcupine esque glory. <laughs> I think, I
1: think it's yeah, I think it's pretty effective. Um, so for for what the movie is and what I believe M uh, Night was trying to do, I think it's very effective because you only get glimpses of the monsters, and I I think his portrayal of them are, is mainly to build tension. And I think the way he portrayed them for the first hour or so is just kind of glimpses kind of, he, he builds the effect of like, you know, when you're, you're home alone, you kind of see something move out of the corner of your yeah. eye, <laughs> and you know, like, you know, you're home alone, but you still kind of look over. Um, there's that one scene where I think Joaquin Phoenix is walk, He just crossed the border. And he's picking, he's picking a flower, and then you see that thing dart out of the corner of his eye, and and all these glimpses of the monsters are, um, they are that just that they're just glimpses, and um, I think they're very effective. I think it would have changed the movie a little bit if there were more instances of monsters, um, because of that, it it would have been more of a monster movie, not kind of a a thriller, as, as it were. So, yes, I would have liked to see more monsters because I like to see monsters. Mm-hmm. But at the <laughs> right. same time, uh, at the same time, I think that kind of um, phantom glimpse was very effective. Uh, I think it's I, a bit of balance. Yeah, it built it built plenty of tension to make you question, you know, what's going on and what's what's going to happen.
0: I'm like you. I would want more instances of monsters because like yeah i love monsters and movies i want more of everything but at the same time if the beginning of the film starts alluding to the monsters more that they actually do exist then all of that time that he spends developing the authenticity of that world and those characters and getting to know kind of the the ins and outs of their life i feel like a lot of that gets done away because then if you see it early on then you can't question the existence of it ever and i mean we can get into the twist in a minute but i think it It gives a really great ebb and flow because at the beginning of the film, you assume that it's a legend or a lie just to keep the kids in line or to keep the town in line. And then you start to see evidence of them where we see the hairs that have been skinned and then the doors get red markings on them. And then we find out that, oh, hey, the monsters aren't actually real. That's the big twist in that the elders have created this lie to keep people inside the village. And then we learn ultimately that This is not really a village in the 1800s. This is a village in 2004 when the movie took place. They're kind of this group that has decided to kind of leave behind society and go live this isolated lifestyle, mostly because the founders, who are the town elders, all experienced loss or a traumatic incident. So somebody's brother's murdered, somebody's child dies, I believe, and then a couple other people get murdered. So they're like, yeah. yeah, the sister. And so it's like, oh, we want to protect the innocence of society. So we're going to create a society that's removed from the kind of evil in the world. So this idea, though, that we find out that the monsters are fake, but then we have that instance where Bryce Dallas Harper is running through the woods and a monster shows up way too far from the camp. So then again, like it, we're challenged at this idea of do we actually know what's happening? Do the elders actually know what's happening? It just makes for a really good balance overall that I didn't remember the movie having.
2: Yeah, for I mean, for me, I I I like like there's subtle hints throughout the movie that they drop of like, um, people experiencing bad of their past being horrible. Like, uh, Lucia's mom talks about her her husband getting killed on a run to the grocery stop um, store, and then. Um, I think Miss Claire I think her name is where her sister gets murdered and it's like little subtle hints of like going like making runs that like where there were it it, to me you kind of I don't know it just seemed like there were subtle hints of like modern time but like you don't really put it together until the end of the movie which I kind of like because like if you have to be really focused into the movie in order for you to catch on to those little details but you kind of definitely get the subtle hint of like there's something like they're not telling us like there's something in the past that it's keeping them away from being connected to the other cities or towns or whatever, which I really liked. And, and I don't, I don't know, for me, it was like on a, on a second rerun cause I already knew what happened. It was kind of like picking up those subtle details where it's like, Oh, now this makes sense of like, you know, like even throughout the movie, it, it is slowly revealing itself of what the reality is that they're living in. And it's, I don't know, for me, I think M9 does such a great job at, putting those at least during his that great spirit uh or time span that he did those movies i thought he does such a great job at hiding subtle hints of the future of the actual like truth about the movie
0: in the movie itself on a rewatch max did you pick up on some of those things more even though because it is a rare trait for a director and not every movie that has a twist holds up because the whole movie is built around a twist right and then once you kind of have it spoiled If this filmmaker kind of doesn't build a rich world that includes a twist, sometimes I find that like those movies that are 100% reliant on the twist can be pretty rough on a rewatch. Did you think that the film held up really well for you, even though you did know the twist? I think it did.
1: Uh, Just because the
0: the the writing,
1: uh, without the twist, it's a pretty good movie. Um, I think the characters play off each other very well, and I think the writing. Is done very well, um, and it, so like on the rewatch, since I already knew what was going to happen, I could kind of picked up on the details that they kept dropping subtle things about modern society. They kept talking about money and the economy. They kept talking about you know the towns and modern medicine, um, but also, and I think this may have ultimately been M Night's downfall, is that when you see an M Night Shyamalan movie, you're expecting a twist. And so the whole movie, you're like, when's the twist going to happen? What's the twist going to be? And so you're constantly, I find it to be a little distracting because um, you're constantly trying to find out, like, look behind the curtain and see, like, like ha- wh- what's going to happen in the background. Um, so I think that, that, that might have, you know, been a double-edged sword for him because he had, you know, three or four knockout movies and they all have the same kind of formula, but um on the rewatch i thought it was pretty cool and i also noticed that i don't know if you guys noticed it but the um nature preserve they are is the walker Mm. nature preserve so it's it's ivy's grandfather who owns i don't know however many thousands of acres of land um so i thought that was an interesting detail that i didn't pick up on before like when she climbs over the fence it says walker preserve i'm like oh shit like
2: yeah yeah they
1: they (laughs) briefly mentioned that um the Grandfather was a millionaire, very wealthy, and he yeah, didn't trust right. So, I, I that's a detail I didn't pick up, I only picked up on the second watch.
0: That was something that I didn't pick up on until a rewatch as well, because it's one of those things that is so sudden. And then, you it's that's what is so great about his early work uh, and like Shaman's early work is that you pick up on a small detail like that, and then you start working backwards and you realize how that one little detail is the foundation of basically the entire movie, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's this idea that oh, hey, her grandfather was not just one of the founding elders. He is the person that is able to finance this entire endeavor out in the woods. Um, For me, though, what really stood out on a rewatch, even though I obviously knew the twist, was how disturbing that entire premise is. This idea that this entire village, I don't know how many hundreds of people it is, their entire reality is just a lie. Everything that they believe is a lie. It's based on fear Like I said earlier, the economy of fear is what this society is built upon. This idea that if you leave, you'll be killed. This idea that if you try to leave, something is going to come in and not only kill you, but it's going to kill all of us. This idea that they even use that when um, Joaquin Phoenix's character ventures out into the woods briefly and then comes back. There's repercussions for that. We see that the monsters come the next night and then the town elders are like, the reason that this is happening to us, to everyone, is that one of you did something you shouldn't have done. So this idea that everybody is living in fear and even going back to the beginning of the film, Brendan Gleeson, the film opens with Brendan Gleeson burying his son who died because of a lack of medicine. And these elders all decided like, we're going to let this, I think his son is seven. They're, we're going to let this seven-year-old die to ensure that this lie that we've crafted never falters. We can't risk it. We can't risk somebody going out and getting medicine, coming back and saying something, and everybody d- figures it out. Like, it's think, speaks it speaks to just how think, fucked up yeah. this society is.
1: I think they know. I think they. Well, I, the elders definitely know about you know what's no, going the, on. Yeah, oh, the elders oh, yeah, know. Yeah. yeah. And so, and then everybody is, else. Right. Right. But what is confusing to me, especially since you, I, I guess you just brought you know, uh, brought that up, Jay, is that. They let that kid die, and it's the elder's kid as well. And so the elder, I guess, um, didn't have a choice and let his child die from being sick. But then they let Ivy go out to save Walking Phoenix, and they're saying, well, you threatened, you know, everything that we built on this town, and, like, these kids are the future, whatever. And so it kind of makes me question whether or not the – I think the villagers also know that there's – Towns and there's like a life, a world outside of the woods. It's just this monster barriers keeping them uh, from getting there. But another disturbing part is like how how many layers of this mythos that they built. So it's not just the village, but uh, the security guard on the outside. Um, you know they told them that you know you can't go over the fence because it's a wildlife preserve and there's a lot of dangerous animals. And if you go over the fence and get attacked, we can't help you. And so, the people, the security guard or the the park rangers, also are living this entire like their their entire livelihood is a lie because right. they're hired, <laughs> you know. They and so like the amount of work that goes into lying to the villagers to keep them in, and then lying to the security guards to keep them out is staggering. I mean, they they had to you know, they paid off the government to not have planes or helicopters fly over the preserve. And it's just the amount of effort to do this is, again, staggering. And, to, and that they're able to maintain this for so long without it falling apart. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, it really comes down to this idea that it's not so much that the villagers don't know that there's a world outside of their world, because you're right, Max, they do talk a lot about the different villages that are out there and they talk about how there are other people out there but i think what's more disturbing to me is this idea that they're allowed to believe that they are living several centuries before they actually are this yeah. it's not so much that they're isolated or that they don't interact with other people it's this idea that they're living back in uh like puritan times to this yeah. certain extent like it's this idea that modernizing in a way that would improve everybody's life say what you will about overpopulation and all these different things, but it's like modernization increases everybody's life. It increases from the uh, roots of everything. It's like, if you have medicine, people are going to live longer. You're not going to have seven-year-olds dying as frequently as they do in this uh, uh, town or village as if you were living in a modern village. It's just not a thing that would happen. So I think that idea that, and they even speak about it, this idea that they purposefully limit themselves. They talk about the limitations with which they live life and... People that aren't aware of modernization and medicine and all of those things, it just it kind of speaks to this idea of them being overly selfish, this idea that they're doing this for quote unquote, the greater good, but you're not doing it for the greater good because there are things out there that could be good for everyone's life. So I think that was the part on a rewatch that was most disturbing for me, and it what it's what stands out as being kind of the real monster of the movie, obviously. They are behind the literal monsters, but it kind of just speaks to this idea that the people in power think that they're doing what's right and yet they're allowing all of these shortcomings in people's lives to occur and they're not really doing anything about it or they're perverting that reality. Um, but Berto, what did you kind of think overall of the big twist? I thought that was
2: like, for me, I just think it's so fucked up that they kind of let them to believe they're living like 200 years before their time that they actually live in and it's like it's so like i guess it's almost like lucky and ironic that they happen to send ivy who's blind who she she's because she when she first jumps over the fence she's like what's that noise when the guy pulls up with the car and she has no idea like she has never heard any sound of plane or motor or anything so it's like she's like what's that noise and the guy's like it's a car and he's kind of like it goes right over her head and it's like had had they, had Lucius gone over, he probably would have never come back. He would have been like, he probably would have came back with like people and like he probably would have rebelled against the whole village because it's like, you're keeping us away from this. We saw your son die, a seven-year-old kid die for us to stay away from this civilization. It's way ahead of our time living in these woods. But overall, I thought the, the twist itself is crazy. And, and back to what Max was saying, how like, like even the security guard is so confused as to what the hell is going on because he thinks he's he's protecting wildlife when in in reality they're human beings living on the other side of the wall and it's just like it's just such a crazy concept to think about like there's just two two group of human beings are being like their minds are being messed with by telling them lies and it's like it's just a crazy plot twist to me
0: yeah absolutely and i mean something that i was just thinking about and just realized is It's almost more sinister that they decide to send Ivy who can't see because while, yeah, William Hurt's character says like, yeah, she's more capable than other people. We see that she almost dies by falling in that pit. And I mean, it doesn't help that Adrian Brody's character Noah is like trying to kill her at a certain point. But it's this idea that he's knowingly putting somebody that can't see in danger. There are some limitations to her being blind, which we see not as obviously she has some type of powers that stop that from being a total detriment to like her quality of life. And yet this idea is you want to send the blind person to go over the fence because she can't report back what she sees. Like you said, Berto, if they send Noah or someone that can see, chances are they're going to either potentially stay there because they're going to be so curious or they're going to bring back that knowledge and use it to unearth the foundation of the village essentially and kind of uproot what they've been, they're going to bring that wickedness of the outside world into the village and I mean it just kind of again it shows that unwavering dedication to keep the outside world at bay no matter the cost of what it does I found to be very disturbing and it makes the movie take on a new context for me in that this is essentially like a cult movie yeah. in the terms of a cult horror movie in that yeah they're not Sacrificing people, and they're not chanting to some deity. But at the same time, this is a way of life that they are pushing on to other people, and the other people don't even realize it.
2: It's like a mental mess up. Like they're yeah. messing them mentally, not even physically. It's just like mental screw up of like making them believe that they live in a certain time period when they're really not, and they could have avoided everybody getting sick or the kid dying just by just because the elders are upset about what happened in their past they' literally ruin everybody else's life. which is just so messed up to think about.
1: And I think it's also a very short term fix to yeah. their problem because eventually the elders are going to, once the elders are all dead, there's no new knowledge or information coming in also no new genetics coming in either. So you have yeah. three or four, you got three or four generations eventually, you know, inbreeding is going to happen and it's going to be this hills have eyes type of nightmare village (laughs) in this wildlife reserve. and and i i think you know it i've definitely been there nowadays where i kind of want to get off the grid go move and you know go move to alaska and like disappear for a while but you know there comes a time where you have to eventually rejoin society because you need resources you need knowledge you need you know they're they're other basic human needs outside of you know food water and and some sort of sh- social structure
0: we yeah. all want to go off the grid just not so far off the grid that there isn't like an urgent care clinic somewhere nearby right all right you know uh, and
2: i was just thinking about max saying that like inbreeding it's like what if in like two generations some brave ass kid decided to like grab a piece of wood and clock this monster over the head right, <laughs> like, right. that would have been it yeah. like and you'd be like oh shit it's johnny what the hell
1: yeah i killed Not, my like,
2: dad that would have just <laughs> gone a whole riot right there i don't know i feel like i would have been brave enough maybe at that point it's like this motherfucker's in the woods i'm gonna kill him and,
0: Some... and yet that speaks to how man- twisted and manipulated all of them are and we see that in the opening moments when the town elder is talking to the kids in school and he's yeah. like drilling them on the rules and it's like what happens when you fuck up and you forget one of these rules? We're all going to get killed. Imagine exactly. hearing that for, I don't know how old like Jesse Eisenberg's character and them are supposed to be, maybe in their early 20s. But imagine if for your 20, 21 years of life, you're told that there's a monster that will kill you and then it'll kill all your friends and family. This yeah. idea like you live in complete fear all the time. There's no, There's not a day that goes by that you're allowed to forget. As soon as I allow like a red plant or a red weed to grow out of the ground and that doesn't get addressed, we could all die. Right. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is what I think for me, it allows the movie to hold up as well as it does. Even if you know the twist, okay, there's no monsters. That doesn't change the fact that the entire, the real twist is this idea that their entire perception of reality past the monsters is just a complete farce. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I, I don't know. I don't know if they addressed it in the movie when Ivy returns with the medicine. Um, I don't know if anyone addresses that Ivy returns with the medicine. And I also don't know if they addressed the fact that she technically broke the rules Um, because there was one, I think during a meeting, I don't know what it was, but one of the women, one of the villagers said that, you know, the monsters are, you know, leaving these signs The monsters entered the village because she, cross the border one day. Um, but they also don't really say, I don't think they address that Ivy takes two other people and then they come back. Will the monsters come back Mm -hmm. or do they just say, Oh, we gave them a sacrifice. And so they let us pass. I don't know if that was addressed or maybe I missed it.
0: I, so it's not clearly addressed. It seems to me that they're going to, that they're going to forgive her for leaving. Because at the end of the movie, you have that moment where she brings back the medicine, and I believe they all stand and they're all standing in like agreement. right. Yeah. I can't remember though if that's before or after she leaves. like if they're agreeing for her to leave or they're agreeing no, that.
2: I think it's before. Yeah, it's before. Yeah.
0: okay, so that was yeah. before. But um, yeah, I mean, the movie does kind of fizzle out at the end in terms of she brings back the medicine and supposedly she she'll save him with it. But I think that in in ending the film somewhat ambiguously, it leads you to believe like, hey, it could go one of two ways. If she doesn't say something to everybody else, then they're going to probably just fall back into the cycle that they've been in. And if she does decide to reveal, hey, these monsters are all bullshit, what does that do to the people that live there? Right. Like, it's obviously going to cause chaos because there's going to be people that will accept it and won't accept it. But this idea that how do you, how do you rationalize that into yourself? How are you told, hey, you're actually living as if we're 2,000 or 1,000 years in the past? Yeah. That's insane. Like, I don't know how people wouldn't freak out and have a complete mental breakdown. Right. Yeah. I,
1: think, I think Ivy handles it very well. When And actually, mm-hmm. that, that scene uh, made me question her, her vision impairment uh, because her father shows her the, the costumes and she's terrified like she walks in and then she you know she's like oh there's one of them but you know she's blind and since it's not alive she can't really it it effectively doesn't have an aura you know it doesn't have a color so when she saw the the costume she reacted and her father's like no don't worry it's it's a costume there's no one in there don't be mad mm. but your life is alive and we're the monsters. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so you know that small detail, I didn't. I, I kind of looked past. But that conversation between her father, Ivy, and her father, where he reveals everything and reveals those whole plot, reveals the whole, uh, you know, the, the basis of their society. She kind of handles it pretty well. I mean, she she yeah, cries. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah she yeah. cries, and she's you know hurt and and felt betrayed. But most of the time, I feel that if you tell someone who's been indoctrinated this fully this and living this whole existence based around this lie, they some people would have, like, an existential crisis, like, have a serious,
2: oh, yeah,
1: you know, problem. And she kind of takes it in stride and is like, well, I'll deal with this later. I need to find medicine to save, um, you know, save my fiance, save Walking Phoenix's character. And then she's like, I guess I'll deal with it when I get back. But... Her character deals with like serious, you know, exi- like existential crisis points. And she kind of takes it in stride. And, you know, I, I, but it's also not, I don't know. What, what do you guys think about that? I'll, I'll just put, pose it as a question.
0: He tells her that the monsters are bullshit, but she doesn't know about the wider implications of that. Only we, the audience, know the wider implications of that. This right. idea that, oh, hey, uh, Brendan Gleason's son's headstone Says 1890 to 1897. We're the only ones that realize that that is a facade. Right. So I think that it's it's easier for her to grasp, no matter how hurt she is, that hey, we are doing this again. There's the guise of this is for your safety. The monsters, the monster lies, so that way people don't venture out and get hurt in these other villages. Right. They don't call them cities; they call them villages. And so even in yeah, or towns. So even in that sort of vocabulary that he uses in her mind since what does she know and she obviously doesn't have a visual rolodex of cert- of what those things even look like it's easy to ke- to kind of keep that perversion of a lie going it's this idea that yeah there's places like our own home out there but she doesn't realize what the modernization of those actually looks like right. so for me i think it's more about Hey, I can accept this lie that, in the face of it, it, seems like it's for the greater good, and yet the larger implications of it still escape her. That's why yeah. she is able to leave and then obviously come back so she can save her fiance. Right.
2: I think. I think to Jay's point, like he, so I think the father, like, told him this this whole backstory, but I don't think he ever tells. It tells them what time period they're living in because when she does hop the fence she's like what is that like i feel like had that dad told them we're we're actually living in the year 2004 where there's cars he would explain they make these sounds and all that she would have been aware once she heard the car she's basically telling them that we're living here because our family members had suffered and your grandpa was wealthy and due to that he got greedy and and all that but i don't think he ever tells them the time period that they're in um Because like I said, again, she would have probably caught on to the fact that, oh, what was that sound of the car pulling up? And I think he just kind of told her enough to be like, yeah, there are other people behind that fence that will help us. And there's also people doing other things outside of these woods. If you can get through these woods and we're living here because we have suffered so much. in by living in other towns that we decided to basically keep our group in here stuck basically um but i don't think he ever does end up telling them the time period they're in
0: yeah he i mean the father goes out on such a limb to get the elders to accept that she's gonna leave and get what we need and then come back yeah. and yet he's still not really willing to sacrifice the society that they built because again mm. like otherwise Berto, like you had said he would have given her more context probably right. if he was like "Fuck it she found out about this facade everything is on the table In reality, or at least what is portrayed in the movie, he's only telling her just enough that she has context for what's happening and why she doesn't actually have anything to fear. And it's even to like that extent, uh, the father sends two, not bodyguards, but like guides with her. Mm. People that are cloaked in the uh, golden robes that are supposed to protect them. There's like a bag of sacred rocks that she has that are supposed to protect them. And again, the two guides are not in on it. They are yeah. not told anything. And so to continue that kind of the facade by keeping the, vil- the other villagers in the dark, I, am, I would be inclined to believe that if the film continued on after the when it ends, that the elders would try to continue the kind of life that they've been living. They wouldn't right. want everybody else to find out. And they would probably, I don't know what they would do to keep Ivy from talking or telling other people about that, but it's strongly indicated that nothing is really going to change.
2: Yeah. I'll be curious. Like I was curious as to, I would love to see what happens like 20 minutes after that movie supposedly Mm -hmm. ends. Cause I want, I'll be curious as to like, are the villagers or the villagers going to ask Ivy all these questions? Like, what was it like? And like, how she would respond to all that? Like, I'll be very curious to hear her respond and her reaction to realizing there were not like I killed one of the monsters and we are not the only human beings here. And there's other people out there who are nice. Cause she like picks up on the fact that the guy was nice and she can sense it that there are like the fathers, the, the, the elders always talked about how bad people were. But then she, first thing she noticed, she's like, I can hear kind in your voice. And it's like, well, there are nice people out there that actually want to help us are willing to help you if you just like talk to them and i think i think i would love to see what would happen 10 minutes after the end end of the movie just to see that connection in that and that um connection with ivy and the, and the other
0: villagers joaquin phoenix miraculously heals jumps out of bed and just charges to the wall yeah, yeah. probably, probably.
1: <laughs> it, it just kind of not yeah now that we're like talking about it and breaking it down it's just it's just kind of sick you know, like, yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, definitely. They they talk about how bad everyone else is and how evil manipulative and that, you know, oh, your grandfather was a good man, uh, but he wasn't a great judge of character because these people lied to him and they took advantage of him. And that's exactly what the elders are doing to the entire village. So, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in a certain context, the villagers are just as bad. They become what they're trying to avoid as these manipulative yeah. selfish people and so they become these manipulative selfish people to preserve some you know way of life that's preserving innocence so mm-hmm. you know it's kind of a yin and yang type of situation you need you know you need a little darkness to preserve this evil or whatever else like you know road to hell is paved with good intentions and yeah. you know that village seems like a fucking personal hell to me <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah
2: I would be so mad if I found out that there was, was like so we're bad. living and not in the 1800s. Yeah. What?
0: I'd fucking burn yeah. it down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, for that, sure. I mean, there's all the indicators that like that's that's the next step, right? If Ivy right. says anything, it seems to me like in the village there's a lot more young people than there are the elders, mm-hmm. and it wouldn't take much for there to be some type of uprising. Yeah. And so, yeah. if that if that notion that hey, the outside world is not kind of the the evil bill of goods that we've all been sold this idea like curiosity is a killer in terms of like the idea that the society's built around if people start getting curious and there's no monsters well fuck you I want to go check out that next village or that next town there's other people there hey they're not that bad why wouldn't I want to go over there and investigate right. so it is a very kind of like pessimistic society and they're incredibly cynical this idea that oh hey everybody out there is evil well I can't believe that if we live in a community, we're the only good people out there. And so it just speaks to this idea that like, yeah, if you're going to go to such extremes to protect everybody, eventually you're going to kind of become exactly what you're terrified of and what you're scared of. Right. right. I was really pleasantly surprised, and especially in talking with you guys about the ending, how well the film holds up. Because like I said earlier, it's not just that this movie is notable for it having a twist, right? That joke... There was some running gag in a show or a skit or something where it was like M. Night Shyamalan's next movie, that's gonna be a twist inside of a twist inside of a twist. It's more about there is a twist in this movie, but it kind of is a larger, uh, a larger focus on kind of just like a society and what a society is built around. And it doesn't even have to do with the supernatural elements because at the end of the day, it ends up being just as fucked up, the idea that, hey, your entire perception of reality is a complete lie and a facade
2: yeah it was definitely definitely a wild uh theme to have a movie based on like i don't know it's I, for me I, it definitely is like the first time we ever get to see such thing and it's just so crazy to wrap your head around like how could someone even think of of doing such thing like that and it's like for me like even it was hard to realize like they live in the middle of the woods and like i'm glad they explained at the end that there's no planes flying over because i would have questioned that like throughout the whole movie like first time watching i was like well wouldn't they have heard any planes flying but i'm glad at the end they kind of they kind of bring that in where it's like yeah we had to talk with the government we had to pay them off to not fly over this area which fits in perfect but yeah for me i would have definitely have questioned being a villager in there i would have been like oh, there's got to be something better than this. Like, we can't just be doing this 24, 365. And it's like winter season comes. It's like everybody gets sick. And then what next? You know, I don't know. I I just, the whole plot and the the theme for the movie was just like crazy to me.
0: I think this is definitely one of those early M. Night Shyamalan movies that gets overlooked a lot just because obviously Mm -hmm. it's in such close proximity to The Sixth Sense. You've got Unbreakable. You've got obviously signs. And uh, yeah, I just, I was very appreciative that we had an opportunity to kind of Revisit an early M Night Shyamalan movie and uh, see how well it holds up. But as always it's a pleasure having you guys on to chat. Yeah, thanks for
2: having.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram and at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.